0: John chapter 1. As we continue our study of this book, you'll find notes in your bulletin. We encourage you to follow along with us. There isn't a section of scripture that more clearly identifies the person of Jesus Christ and all of his glory as John 1 does. Last time we looked in the first five verses at his relationship to all things, then in verses 6 to 8 at the record of John about that word, and now we're going to begin at verse 9 and go to verse 18. As we look at two major thoughts, one is in verses 9 to 13, we're going to examine the response of men to the Word, and then in verses 14 to 18, the revelation of that Word to men. Tremendous portion of God's Word. We'll begin at verse 1 again, so we remember what we studied last week, so follow along in your Bibles. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness overcame it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Will you join with me in a moment of prayer? Father, we thank you again for your word, for the clear presentation as to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Father, we pray that you'll make us very sensitive to the message of God's word, that we'll be open-hearted, we'll be ready to receive, that we'll understand our own needs and how he can meet them. And we thank you for this time around your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now beginning with verse 9 and going through verse 13, we're looking at the response of men to the word. And there's no section of God's word that so clearly identifies how an individual can respond to Jesus Christ and know that he has come to a personal relationship with him. I'd like you to notice first of all in verse 9 the effect upon all men of the light. The Bible says that was the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, he's not talking about salvation there. Every man has not been saved, according to that verse. The verse is saying that every man has received the light. Well, what light? Back in verse 4, it says, In him, meaning in Jesus, is life. And that life is the light of all men. Same thing being said here. He's the light that lighteth every man who is coming into the world. The light is referring to the knowledge of God. The passage is teaching that Jesus is God, manifest in human flesh. Therefore, all men have received Christ's light because they've received the light, the knowledge, the understanding of the existence of God. You say, how have all men received that? You mean everyone that's coming into the world has knowledge of God? Absolutely. The Bible teaches, first of all, we have a knowledge by creation. That by the things that are made, we know the invisible things of God, at least his eternal nature. That is, that he had to exist before it was made, obviously, if someone made it. And secondly, that he has power. Somebody bigger than you and I made it. So all men have a knowledge of God in creation. And Romans 2 also teaches that all men have that knowledge of conscience that men know in their minds and in their hearts. They know of the existence of God. And that's why some writers have written of the God-shaped vacuum in every man's life that can only be filled by the God who made him. This is very important. The Bible teaches that all men have received the knowledge and the light of the existence of God. And the point of the passage is, look at Jesus and you'll discover the details of it. See? Because He is God. And that wonderful light and that knowledge of God, the details of which you are seeking for and trying to understand, are all wrapped up in God who became man are wrapped up in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, secondly, in verse 10 and 11, I'd like you to notice the attitudes of men to the Word. We see two examples here. We see, first of all, the world in general in verse 10. It says he was in the world, meaning his presence. He was there. People heard him. They saw him. They saw what he did and what he said. He was in the world by way of presence, and the world was made by him, his power. And the world knew him not. It did not know him. Now, I'd like you just for a moment to reflect upon that. Because, you see, the world did see him. They did hear what he said. They saw some of his miracles, which he did. And yet the Bible says that the world in general did not know him. It doesn't even say the world today does not know him. It's talking about the world at the time of Christ. At that moment, they did not know him, even though they saw him. They saw him with their physical eyes, which we have not done and have not seen. They heard what he said. You see, you can know about Jesus of Nazareth and not really know him. A strange paradox, which believers understand. It is possible to know a great deal about Christ. And these people at Jesus' time certainly knew a great deal more than we know today in terms of the physical, in terms of what he said and did. And yet the Bible is clear, they did not know him. And you may be sitting here with quite a bit of knowledge about Jesus of Nazareth, but it's very important to understand that there is a difference in the knowledge of an individual in terms of Jesus. Some know about him, some know him. And there is a difference, which we'll try to explain as we move along. Now, in verse 11, you've got the second example of attitudes of people to the word who was manifested. And that's the Jews in particular. The Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, Jesus was a Jew. His mother was a Jew. She was in the line of David through Nathan. His father, who adopted him, of course, after he was born, supernaturally, virgin birth, according to the Bible. Joseph then married Mary. And Joseph was in the line of Solomon through David. So Jesus was definitely a Jew. And he came unto his own, to the Jewish people. They heard what he said. In fact, often they were picking up stones to stone him because they knew quite clearly what he said. The other day, last Thursday, I was up at the University of Southern California free speech uh, deal there. And uh, there was a crowd, of course, and listening to what I had to say. uh, It reminds me of the Bible. Some mocked, some believed. You know, you just don't know. But anyway, one fellow was quizzing me about this, about Jesus and the person of Christ and about his revelation, about knowing him and that he is the eternal God. And he came up to me and he, uh, he said, well, what about the Jews? He said, you know, the, the Jews rejected him. And you're saying here that he's God. You know, I really can't swallow that. I really can't buy that. And I said, you know, fellow, it's interesting that you would give the example of the Jews. And he said, why is that? I said, well, you know, they give clear evidence in the Bible that Jesus really did claim to be God. He said, they couldn't. They put him on the cross. I said, just a minute. The Bible says that they rejected him for the claim of blasphemy. I read him several passages in the Bible where it said that the Jews picked up stones to stone him because they knew that he had made himself equal with God. Isn't it funny how we vacillate and are confused in our generation about who the real Jesus is? Makes you want to say, well, the real Jesus, stand up, please. We're not really sure who he is. But the Jews were not mistaken. They knew exactly what he was claiming. Now, they rejected him when he came into the world. But they knew exactly what he claimed. The final charge of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews that put Jesus on the cross, was blasphemy, that he had claimed to be God. There was no mistake about it in the minds of those who heard him teach. They knew what he claimed. So why should we question it? Jesus claimed to be God. The question is, was he a liar? Was he crazy? Was he a paranoid with delusions of grandeur? Or was he telling the truth? If he was a liar, then the question is, what are his motives? He never acquired a great deal of wealth. He never sought fame. He never owned a house or a boat or a car. He sought a place to say, and he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. If Jesus was a liar, then I ask you, what were his motives? Why was he lying? Why would a man who was lying go to the cross and die? Now, he could have been lying. He could have been telling people lies. But if he was, what was his motive? You might say, well, maybe he's just a little crazy, a little paranoid, delusions of grandeur. Uh, Maybe he was a good man, but yet he just got carried away and thought himself to be something that he wasn't. If that's true, I would want you to know without any mistake that every paranoid has never in all of his life characterized and manifested the attributes of Jesus. It's a constant paradox to psychologists how Jesus, who claimed to be God, could be a paranoid at the same time he manifested the characteristics he did. He manifested characteristics that are opposite of someone who's crazy, who are opposite of someone who's having delusions of grandeur. Friends, have you ever really faced the claims of Jesus? Many people to get out of this problem say today, well, he never really claimed that. But listen, I remind you of, of John 1, 11, that he came unto his own and his own did not receive him because they believed that he claimed to be God. They heard him say it. They heard him teach it. And they put him on the cross. He's either telling the truth or he's a liar or a lunatic with delusions of grandeur. Face the alternatives before you accept or reject Jesus of Nazareth. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. You know, that little word receive to me is a tremendous blessing. There are different ways to express the word receive out of the Greek language, different words. This is a compound word, and it's used by Jesus a little bit later in John fourteen, three. Would you turn there, please? I want you to see the significance of receiving Jesus Christ. In John 14, we have the example the case of where Jesus was with his disciples. He's already informed them that he's going to go away. And, of course, they're very disturbed. They're discouraged. And in John 14, we have some of the best words, best doctrine that flew out of the mouth of Jesus, precious things. But in verse 1, here's what he said to them. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Quite a claim right there. In my Father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, that's a beautiful thing. Jesus said, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. Now, this little word receive that I'm referring to, and by the way, that's the word in John 11. It means to take alongside of. It's a beautiful word. To take someone alongside of you, you see, in affection and commitment and trust and love. Jesus said, I'm going to come again and take you alongside of me, and wherever I am from there on, you're going to be with me. We're going to be with Jesus forever. He's going to take us alongside of him. And that helps me to understand John 1.11. He came unto his own, And his own did not take him alongside of them. You see, it wasn't just a question of taking what he said. It was a question of taking Jesus alongside of them in commitment, in trust, in love, in affection. They heard what he said. You may know a lot about Jesus, but maybe you have never taken him alongside of you. One day when Jesus comes unto his own, to his believers, he's going to take them alongside of him. We're going to be with him forever. And that's quite a statement. Now coming back to John 1, 12, beginning at verse 12, the third thing I want you to see is the acceptance of the word by men. Men actually did receive him. There weren't many, but a few did receive him. When I think of the Apostle Paul, I usually think of crowds, churches all over the Mediterranean world. But you know, to be honest and straightforward about the text and the word of God and the acts and the history and so forth, there were very few Very few people. He had a missionary method and a plan whereby there were a few here, a few there, and so forth, and that's how it spread. But Paul actually led few people to the Lord. Some people in our day have led more people to the Lord than the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? In just sheer terms of number, did you know that? Even in the past generation. Even in the last century, people have seen more people, one to Christ in the ministry, than the Apostle Paul ever saw. That sometimes startles us, doesn't it? There were a few people. I just finished reading the life of George Whitfield. What a blessing. Man, no man so affected America as that man. Also, England and Scotland, in terms of the Great Awakening. He just lived just before the time of the Revolutionary War. What an effect he had. You know, that man would preach to 30, 40, 50,000 people out in the open fields before microphones. He had a tremendous ministry. He'd go to where the people are, all those terrible places like dives where there were drunks and harlots and immoral people and the Church of England, of which he was a clergyman, by the way, and a very strict one and very established, as as we would say today. The established church was really his heart. And yet this distinguished clergyman, always in his robes, by the way, would go into these dives and tell people that God loved them and he would forgive them. Thousands of people flocked to hear him. But you know what struck me? In one place where he preached to 30,000 people, just a few years he came back, there was only 200. You know, there aren't many. Crowds flock to hear Jesus, but you know, few are believing. And you see that in the Gospel of John. There's a tremendous response for Jesus. Then all of a sudden, you watch it narrow down to the few who really believed in Jesus Christ. The crowds hear much, few believe. But I'm thankful for John 1.12 and John 1.13. You know, in spite of the fact he came unto his own, his own did not receive him. In spite of the fact that the world did not know him, there were the few who believed and received him. Now, we usually apply John 1:12 to us today, but I'd like you to notice that it's past tense. As many as received him. That tells me when he was here, people did receive him. They did take him alongside of them, committed themselves unto him, trusted in him, loved him, believed in him. I'd like you to notice several things. First of all, in verse 12, I'd like you to notice the relationship that's experienced when you really accept Christ. What happens to you? What relationship do you receive? The Bible says in verse 12, as many as receive him, received him, to them gave he power, meaning authority or right to become the children of God. The Bible teaches that the relationship that happens when you accept Jesus Christ is that you come into a family, a spiritual family. You are children of God. You are born that way, by the way, according to verse 13. You are born into this family just as surely as you are born into a physical family. So the relationship that Christians enjoy is being in a new family, the family of God. They are children of God because of their faith in Him. The second thing I'd like you to notice is the requirement that's demanded here in verse 12. What is the requirement to get into this wonderful relationship, this family of God? It says, as many as received Him. And the last phrase, even to them that believe, to the ones believing on His name or into His name. That's a very important phrase. To the ones believing into His name. Now I ask you, what does that mean? In Acts 4.12 it says, Neither is there salvation in any other name, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You must believe into the name of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, as we look at the name of Christ in Matthew 1.21, the angel revealed this to Jesus' parents when he said, His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That wasn't a new word, by the way. It's an Old Testament word. And it means Jehovah saves. The Lord saves. Call His name, Jehovah saves, for He'll save His people from their sins. When you believe in Jesus, into His name, you are believing that Jesus alone can save you from your sins. Secondly, in verse 23 of Matthew 1, It says his name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. If you are believing in his name, his name's Emmanuel. God is with us in a human being. So you're agreeing to the fact of the deity of Jesus Christ. You are believing that he is the Lord who made us, that he's the sovereign God, that he's fully able to save you from your sins. Believing in the name of Jesus is very important. Philippians chapter 2 says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is not will you confess him as Lord, but when you will confess him. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is all he claims to be. Now, the third thing I'd like you to notice from verse 13 is the reasons behind this spiritual birth. How does it actually happen? How is it caused? Now, there are three negatives and one positive, three ways that it's not caused and one way that it is. Verse 13, who were born not of blood. Now, every time you see the word of in verse 13, it's literally a preposition meaning out of by way of source. The source by which this new birth, becoming a child of God, a Christian, not because of what you do or you don't do, but because you've been born spiritually, to become a child of God, the source is, first of all, not out of family line. It says not out of blood. It's not by family descent. Because your parents are a Christian does not make you a Christian. Because the church where you attend is Christian does not make you a Christian is not by family descent, not at all. I'm afraid sometimes even parents, to, ne- ne- to the neglect really of John 13 hope and believe that their children are Christians because they have done certain things that are Christian or have taken them to places that are Christian, have taught them Christian teachings. But oh no, every man, woman, and child has to be born of the Spirit of God. It is not by family descent. Secondly, in verse 13, we learn that it is not by personal desire. It's not out of the will of the flesh. You can't save yourself. You might decide here today, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to become a Christian. Well, I want to tell you, if you become one, you'll become your kind of Christian, not God's kind. You'll become the kind that we see so much of today, people who are trying to score points with God, trying to do what they think God wants them to do, but they've never been born of the Spirit of God. There's nothing new in their life at all. The Bible teaches that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things pass away and all things become new. You are born spiritually. You can't save yourself. It's not out of the will of the flesh. Third, he tells us in verse 13 that no one else can save you. It's not by the will of men or of man. Not one single man can save you. Have you ever noticed how people will follow men? They really will. And believe that that man can save me. Listen, no man can save you. The only one who can save you, and that's the fourth thing, is God himself. We are born out of God. It is spiritual birth. You say, how do I know when it happens? At that point is the greatest danger point. Because the Bible nowhere teaches that at the moment you are born spiritually, you will all of a sudden feel something. It nowhere says that. You might feel something, you might not feel something. Now some men, as I read through history, they really felt things. Old Martin Luther, when he got saved, I mean to tell you, is like lightning bolts flashing in the sky. But you know, there are also people who aren't even sure of the time or the day, but they know they love Christ and they've committed themselves to him. No, the Bible never teaches that you're going to feel something in order to prove that you are a believer in Christ. Have you ever sung the hymn? I'm going to ruin this hymn for you now. Since Jesus came into my heart. How do I know he lives? There's another one. Have you ever sung that? Have you ever thought about what those songs are saying? Let's just take that one, he lives. I know he lives because he lives in my heart. Are you kidding I know he lives because there's a historical, reliable record that tells me he lives. That's the whole issue of the gospel. So many people are waiting for the feeling. Listen, God will give you plenty of feelings, I guarantee it. But the reason we believe something is because we're believing the word of God. I know Jesus lives because the Bible says he lives. That's how I know it. If I trust my feelings, brother, I'll be down in the dumps half the time. How do you know you've become a child of God? Because you have believed what the Bible says is necessary to believe. You've accepted it. You've trusted it as your Lord and Savior. The reliability you see is not on your experience. The reliability, the authenticity, the accuracy of all of this is resting on the Word. I am trusting what the Bible teaches. My friend, if you haven't discovered that yet, I urge you right now, to put your faith and trust and confidence in what a written book has said about Jesus Christ. Go ahead, try it. I dare you. I dare you to try. To believe and to trust what the Bible actually says about Jesus. We are born of the spirit of God. Now beginning with verse 14, I want you to see the revelation of the word to men. What a section. God who made us revealed himself. Last Thursday, a student came up and questioning me about what I had said about Jesus being God, and he said, ah, this doesn't make sense. He said, it doesn't make sense at all. I don't see any way that God could have possibly revealed himself as a man. He said, that's terrible. You're actually saying a man was God. I said, that's right, right on, brother. He said, that's crazy. Now, you know that's impossible. He said, if there is a God, you know, that's everywhere at once. I mean, there's no way that he could be a man. Now I'd like you to give, the, give you the illustration I gave that young man. You know, I believe that it's absolutely necessary for God to reveal himself as a man, that there's no other way that he could communicate on the same level. If I have some ants crawling up here on this table and I'm going to decide to communicate to them, now I could draw a lovely poster saying, Dear ants, I wish to communicate with you and show it to them all day. You see that, you guys? Huh? What do you think of that? No response. No response. I could clap my hands, I could sing, shout, you know, whatever, perish the thought. But, you know, I could do that, and still no response, you know. I could ring bells, you know, whatever, you know, pound the ground, whatever. No response. The best way to communicate to those ants is to become one. Communicate on their own level. Listen, the God who made us, in order to reveal himself to us, the only way to adequately reveal himself to the people he made is to become a man And that's what we read beginning with verse 14. How God has revealed himself to men. And we see that first of all in the incarnation. Verse 14. The incarnation. What does that mean? The incarnation simply means to be made flesh. The Bible says the word was made flesh. Literally, it became flesh. It does not use the word born. It does not say he was born flesh. It says he became flesh. Because he existed previous to that, it's necessary to use the Greek word that it uses. If he existed at the time he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, it would have chosen the normal word. He was born flesh. But it cannot do that because he's the eternal God who became flesh in order to show himself to men. He didn't start existing then. He existed before he became a baby in Bethlehem. You say, that's a mystery. You better believe it's a mystery. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3:16 that great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh that is a great mystery. But to emphasize it further in verse 14 it says he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Now the word dwelt means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle and right away John's Jewish hearers would have gone back to the Old Testament the glory of God dwelt in a tabernacle also dwelt in the temple. In John 2, Jesus calls his body a temple. And according to this passage, the glory of God, which was manifested in several ways in the Old Testament, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, when Moses went up on the mount, it says the glory of the Lord came on the mount, and then it says a cloud covered the mount. When Jesus comes back in all his glory, it says he'd come in clouds of great glory. God can manifest himself, give appearances and manifestations in ways like that but that is not a very detailed explanation of it, nor is a very complete revelation. The glory of a God became complete in revelation. God in these last days has spoken unto us by His Son, Jesus. In Colossians 2, 9, it says, "...all the fullness of God dwells in Him bodily, in bodily form." All the fullness of God is dwelling in Jesus, John says we beheld his glory. What's he talking about? The word to behold is the word theater, from which we get theater, and they really gazed upon it. They were watching it. When did they see his glory? Some say throughout his whole life. I'm sure that's true, but I think John is referring to an occasion that he and Peter and James saw for themselves. That was the Mount of Transfiguration. When those three men saw Jesus in one moment of time, give them a dazzling radiant display of what his real nature inside would be like to see it they were blinded by it it's a fantastic display he was transfigured meaning his true nature came out through that corporeal substance in one moment of time and it was just unbelievable the bible says when they lifted up their eyes they saw no man save jesus only It'd be a good thing for all of us you see to see his glory if we wind up just seeing him only We beheld his glory. Now he says that glory, verse 14, is the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Not half grace and half truth. All the grace there is is in Jesus. All the truth there is is in Jesus. Now it's the only begotten of the Father. Have you ever had anybody say to you, if he is the only begotten, then how in the world could he be God? Anybody ever had that said to you? Let me see your hand. Okay, for all 20 of you. Here it is. Five times John uses the phrase only begotten, and every time it refers to Jesus. So there's not really much help for us in understanding what John said because he never defines it. He just says that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son. But one other time it's used in the Bible, only once. And this is most helpful. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17. Hebrews, near the end of the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 17. Here's the only other time outside of John's five references to the Son of God as only begotten that the term only begotten is used, the only other time. So we better look at this passage carefully. It's the only one that can give us any help. Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now here I learned that Isaac is called the only begotten son of Abraham because the promise was that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Well, listen, friends, if he was the only son of Abraham, then something's not right. Because by Hagar, he had a son named Ishmael. He also had a wife named Keturah, who had many sons, of which one was Midian, the father of the Midianites. Abraham had many children. So, how in the world could you say he's the only begotten son? He isn't the only one, he had many other kids. The point of the word is that he's his unique son, the one through whom the promise would come. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. The same thing is true of Jesus. He's the unique son. The only one of its kind is the point. And that to me just thrills me because I realize that the uniqueness of Jesus is a fascinating thing. No one can compare. No one can claim his right to be Messiah. He's the only unique one. No one else fits the qualifications. Do you know if you wanted to get a Messiah right now? I mean, let's suppose Jesus wasn't it. I challenge you to find anyone in history who comes close to the requirements. No one fits the requirements except Jesus of Nazareth. No one. And that's a tremendous statement. He was the unique Son of God. Now back to John 1. We learn about the revelation of God in the Incarnation. And also in verse 15, we learn about him in the instruction of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to verse 15, bore witness, and here's what he said when he was crying out. He said, this was he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me, the one coming after me, is preferred before me. In the text, it simply says, has become before me. For he was before me, literally because he was first. Now watch what he's saying. He said that Jesus came after him. Is that true? Yes. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, if you're looking from the time of their birth. Now he was a second cousin to Jesus, and he was six months older than him. So the one coming after me, he said, is the one that lived before me. He's always existed. In that one statement, John is giving another testimony to the person of Jesus. He was first, meaning priority, a prior claim. He's the pre-existent one, the one who existed before he was born as a baby, according to John. Now third, in verse 16 to 17, you also see the revelation of the word in the involvement of every believer in his life. Look what it says, verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I want to just talk for a moment to the believers, as if I haven't been already, but, you know, just kind of a private talk, house, you know, shop talk. Maybe as a believer you've gotten a little burdened down with some problems lately. Maybe some real hang Maybe you've been seeking for answers to those problems. Maybe you've even tried busyness, you know, getting active, doing what you think God wants you to do in order to solve the problem. I don't know. There might be many ways that you're trying to do what you think God wants you to do and trying to get answers to what's wrong and what the problems are. You know, it really struck me here in verse 16. There's only one answer. Jesus. And if you resent the oversimplification... Let me draw the point out to you. Out of his fullness, we have all received. The point is there is an inexhaustible supply in Jesus of Nazareth that we're not tapping. And grace for grace, literally grace in exchange for grace. The idea is that, you know, grace is what God gives to you. We really don't deserve it, but he just loves us, he gives it. The point is every time you receive something, God giving it to you, guess what? What? There's more to be received. Isn't that strange? You know, I've noticed, like in human terms, if I take something out of a pile, there seems to be less left than what I took out, obviously. But you know, that's not the way it is with Jesus. When you take something out of the pile, as it were, there's more there than there's ever been before. There's an inexhaustible supply. He just giveth and he giveth again, said the songwriter. He just can't stop giving, it's his nature. And every time you receive a little grace from the Lord, He's giving you something, blessing your life, meeting your needs. There's a lot more to be given. And actually, we're fools for not taking from Christ and learning from Him, not receiving from His life. Because if you don't, you're not getting anything, see? But every time you take something, He's not resenting it. Why, He's even throwing you more. So why did you stop taking from Him? Where did you stop getting the message, see, believer? That's what happens. Somewhere along the line... We lost the message. In Jesus is everything I need. His life is an inexhaustible supply. You know, in 1 John 2, 12 to 14, it says there are four levels of spiritual growth. Babies, children, young men, and fathers. Paul wrote that there aren't many fathers around. We wish there were. Mature believers. You know what the description of a mature believer, a father, is? John says he's one who's continuing to know by experience the Lord Jesus. He doesn't need to have victory anymore. He already understands that. He doesn't need to have assurance that his sins are forgiven. He's already made it by that. He doesn't need even to have discipline, although he knows it just keeps coming. But he knows why now. He understands and he accepts it. That isn't what he needs. A mature believer has one need, and that's to know Jesus better. And every time you know something about him, you're really excited, you're so thrilled what you learned about Jesus, and you're ready to tell the world, and in two days you'll realize you don't know anything. It's amazing. It's an inexhaustible supply. He's incomprehensible. It's difficult to know him. Paul said the one driving passion of his life, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, is that I may know him, know him by experience. I want to know Jesus. Peter wrote in 2 Peter three eighteen that to grow, to have maturity as a believer, is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, you'll never run out. The barrel will never run dry if you take from Jesus. Isn't it amazing how we go to a thousand people trying to get answers and Jesus is waiting there saying, hey, I've got it all. Why don't you just come around sometime? Come around and receive a little grace and watch what I'll do. Well, I'll double it before you even turn your back. Take a little grace from me, receive from me, and I'll give you more than you ever thought was possible. And by the way, it'll never run out. That's a beautiful passage. Okay, verse 18. Finally, I want you to see the revelation of God and the identity of God. Boy, what a statement is verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. You say, wait a minute, I thought he appeared to men in the Old Testament. It leaves the definite article, the, out, in front of the word God. No the there. It just says, no man has seen God, period. When the article is left out, it refers to his nature, as we discussed with you back at John 1.1. The word was God, meaning nature, substance, and being. And so here you've got the point, no man has seen the true nature and being of God, and that's true. Now, he manifested himself, showed different demonstrations of himself, but no man saw him. Now watch this carefully. The only begotten... Now what do you have in your Bibles? What's the next word? Son. How many of you have the word God in a translation? Yeah, several of you. You have the New American Standard? Did you know that the earliest manuscripts, that is the ones nearer the time when the scriptures were written, have the reading God there, not Son? It's later manuscripts that have Son in order to explain... I like the one that's near the time of the scriptures. It says, the only begotten God. What a statement. Sometime give that to someone who tells you that Jesus, if he's begotten, couldn't be God. When John 1.18 in the best manuscripts has the only begotten God. Now it says he's in the bosom of the Father. What does it mean to be in the bosom of someone? Affection, love, trust, closeness, intimacy. Watch this. The Son and the Father are intimate. How intimate? They're both God. Mystery of mysteries, God can manifest himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And somehow he can localize himself in a human body without limiting his omnipresence. Everywhere at once, and yet all the fullness of God in a human body. Now, the Son who's in the bosom of the Father, affection, love, closeness, intimacy, no one knowing him is best. The Bible says, he, verse 18, hath declared him. The word declared is an unusual word. It means to lead out. And it was always used by the Greeks in terms of unfolding teaching, leading out of a principle, for instance, unfolding the teaching. Now, the passage is saying that the son, who's in a close, intimate, affectionate relationship with the father, whom no man has ever seen as to essence and substance the Son has unfolded the teaching of the nature of God to the whole world. How about that? If you want to know anything about the eternal God, you can look at Jesus and know that in that physical body, the entire fullness of God, everything that God is, all of His attributes and power, we're right there in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't that exciting? We're not left to confusion. We're not left to not being able to find the details out about God. God gave us an everlasting revelation of himself in bodily form. And the Bible teaches, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus. He's going to have the body in which he arose from the dead. You're going to see the wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet. He's going to keep that body forever. He's not going to get rid of it. Isn't that great news to know that we won't be lost in heaven? You know, looking around, where's God? You know, he's everywhere at once. I can't see him, you know. Oh, no. No even though I believe we could have eyes in order to understand that infinite presence, but I don't believe we'll ever continue or ever finally get to the place where we know God. It's going to be a continual learning process. But it's encouraging to me to know that when we get there, there's Jesus. No mistake about it, there he is. You know what the Bible says is going to happen when you see Jesus? The Bible tells you what's going to happen. Anybody ever accused you of being a holy roller? Listen, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait till you get to heaven. Why, the Bible says that all believers and angels and everyone are going to break out in praise and adoration when Jesus steps forth in that body in which he died. When all eyes gaze upon him and say, there's the Savior, there's the one who died for me. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power, and all heaven will break out. Talk about a holy roller meeting. I'm telling you, it's going to be something else. People will realize that the eternal God is there in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. What a thrill that's going to be. He has declared him. He's unfolded him. Do you know him? Do you? Really? Have you taken him alongside of yourself? Or you're just sitting there knowing about the facts and you've never come to take him alongside, to believe that he's all he claims to be, and to be born of God's Holy Spirit? Trust the Bible leave it right now. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the tremendous presentation of the person of Christ that's here in John 1. God, we thank you for clarifying in our minds who he really is, teaching us. Father, I pray right now for those dear people here in our service who aren't really sure yet. They've heard it. They understand what's been presented, but God, they've not come to take Jesus alongside of them. If he's not telling the truth, then he's got to be a liar. The greatest imposter that could ever have come in the history of the world, all the tremendous things he said he would do, he would forgive us of all of our sin, no matter what we've done. And he said that he would give us eternal life, that we could live forever. And what terrible claims they would be if they're not the truth. We don't even understand how he could be good if he made such claims and they would not be true. And God, I would pray in this moment you'd help us to put our confidence in the word of God, the Bible, that here is a reliable record of Jesus. What he claimed, what he said, what he did. And now we're faced with a choice of what to do. God, I pray right now in this moment, you by your Holy Spirit would draw people to Jesus and show them that he's everything they need. There isn't anything missing. And help them to believe in him. Father, I do pray that you'd help those of us who are believers to take from this passage the things that we should share with others for it says so much about our Lord that must be shared but also to learn from it for ourselves that out of his fullness we have received grace in exchange for grace he just keeps giving more and more and more teach us Lord to come to you we often go to so many people and seek so many answers and solutions when you are the inexhaustible supply you are all we need and we thank you for that It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen.